are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Okay, well, welcome to the Enduring Word um, live Q&A. My name is Chuck Musselwhite. I am one of the board members here at Enduring Word. David asked me last week to fill in for him as he's traveling um, east, um, I believe. Not sure exactly where he's going, um, but I'm, I always love filling in, and I love that you guys stick around um, for that. Um, I want to welcome all the people coming from the uh, different agencies, I believe, of the TRW360. I always screw that one up. David always gets on my case. But um, anyways, we're welcome. Welcome for all you guys to be here. And this is always fun for me. I always grow so much and uh, um, actually look forward to it. So uh, thank you guys for being here. Um, let's start off with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the first question. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for everybody who's taking time out of their schedule to be here from all over the world. Lord, what a blessing. And I just pray, Lord, that they will receive from this as much as I do. And so, Lord, grant me your wisdom and your discernment and your insight into your word, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so the leadoff question um, this afternoon for me is, was once enough? Now, what does that mean? Well, um, I, I, I'm currently teaching through the book of Hebrews at our church, and um, uh, and we're in chapter nine this week. And there's and there's a part of chapter nine that um, kind of sticks out, and and it's interesting because it's something that I've encountered my whole life. And I now I think I've told you guys this before. I come from a Pentecostal background. I grew up um, in Foursquare Assembly of God, graduated from the Assembly of God College. And um, we did my first couple of years at an assembly, a couple of assembly God churches and switched over to Calvary Chapel um, after that. But um, and, and then uh, and, and so one of the things I've always heard, you know, when people are giving altar calls they're like when every time you sin, it's like you're driving the nail into Jesus's hands and feet again. It's like you're crucifying him all over again. And, and I, you know, and I was always a persuasive altar call. And, you know, it was usually some fiery peach preacher at the end. His face was all red and he was trying to, to bring it all in. And he was he was, you know, throwing that heavy, extra heavy um, dose of guilt upon the people. And so that's the way I grew up. But what I didn't realize and, I'm, and it's funny because it's just been reiterated because this week I'm studying in Hebrews chapter nine, verses 15 through 28. Um, but I've also listened to a couple podcasts, one by David and one by another board member, Lance Ralston, um, uh, on Pope Gregory. Um, and it's interesting because what I learned this week, and I don't know much about the Catholic upbringing. Um, my wife grew up Catholic, and so she often gives me a little bit of insight to that. But I haven't been into too many Catholic churches, so I'm, I'm not an expert. But what I what I didn't realize was is that under Pope Gregory, he instituted the whole thing where this mass, the Catholic mass, was actually um, the the re-crucifixion, the re-crucifixion. And I'm going to botch this up because I'm not an expert on this. Um, the re-crucifixion of Jesus. So every mass service is where Jesus is re-crucified, and that's why the sacraments of the bread um, are actually his body, because he's being re-crucified. And that's why you see in the Catholic Church, they actually have Jesus still on the cross, on the crucifixion. And I, and as, a, as I was growing up, I always had a problem with that, because I'm like, just take Jesus off. I mean, he, he died once, and he was resurrected, and, and, and he's alive. He's not on that cross anymore. But that's, and I read more, I, I found out more in-depthly 
why uh, the, um, the the Catholics believe that because that's what Pope Gregory did um, back in the, in, fi- in 500 AD. But let me read you these scriptures here because I want you guys to understand um, how both of those thinking and and it's amazing with the Catholic Church and the and the Charismatic Church that are all over the world. These are so prominent. But if you look here in verse 25 of, of Hebrews chapter nine, and this is just really so good. Um, it says, well, first of all, it's talking about how Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, he went into the perfect sanctuary. When, when we get into heaven, we're going to go and find the perfect church because he's going to be the high priest of it. That's awesome. Um, but it says that it says, nor was it verse 25 to, to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For when, uh, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, what's so great about that scripture is simply this. The theme, one of the themes of Hebrews is once for all. He died once for everybody in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it just happened once. It doesn't need to happen repeatedly. When you sin, you don't re-crucify Jesus. When you sin or you, you stumble and fall away from the Lord and um, you know you have a bender or something like that, that doesn't mean you get, need to get re-saved. It doesn't mean you need to get refilled with the Holy Spirit. All you need to do is repent. And um, and as first John 1 9 says, it says, you know. If you um, confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. So, you know, this morning or this afternoon, I, I just want to encourage you because I, I just know huge um, sections of people are constantly being taught that, that the fact that Jesus is being re-crucified um, every time, whether it be in the mass service or whether it be through our own personal actions. And, and I want you guys to know that once was enough. Once Jesus died once for all. And that was enough to cover those before Jesus Christ came. And I can get into that and, and basically, but, uh, but, but I don't have the time today, but I, but I basically want you to know that their faithful sacrifices was, was, uh, was enough to, for Jesus to forgive them. And then afterwards, all of, all of our sin till eternity, till Jesus returns, his sacrifice on the cross, that once was enough for all. And when it means for all, it means for everybody. And so I want you guys, you know, I mean, I, I know you guys are really smart people and, and, and you've probably heard David talk about that before, but I want you guys to understand that, that Jesus's death on the cross happened once and it was for everybody for all time and it was enough. And I think Christians would um, experience a lot more peace in their life if they had the, um, the attitude that Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's more than enough um, that we need for absolutely everything, for our salvation, for our forgiveness, for our sanctification, for our discipleship. Um, He is enough. We don't need anything else. And so... um, so anyways, I wanted to encourage that with you guys this morning. Um, but Nathan's sending me a question. We have some, oh, we already have a huge group of questions. And I, I just want to say, um, a couple weeks ago, uh, David did a live streaming 
um, from the cruise ship. And, um, and I was right to his left. I was handing him the questions from my phone and we had so much fun. And I was just joking with him that I felt like his like sidekick, kind of like Ed McMahon, you know, was to Johnny Carson kind of thing. And, and we just had so much fun with that. So I just, you know, if you go back a couple of weeks and watch that one, you might hear my voice, but we, man, it was, it was, I, I, I kind of want to go down to his house on, on, on Thursdays now and kind of do that. But, um, that, that we're both too busy, but anyways, I just want to let you guys know that. So um, Vincent um, Migui says, hello, pastors, greetings from Kenya. What should a believer do if you're in a congregation that offers holy communion to children? Well, okay, Vincent, um, the, the, the whole parameters for communion is simply this. Are you a blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ? And, and if you're taking that, do you believe that? Um, and, 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 and as a parent, I think if your child hasn't made that decision, then they shouldn't take communion. But if they have taken that, made that decision, and, 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 if, and I would even you know, say if they've been baptized, because baptized is the public profession of their faith, then I think they should. Now, they don't have to be baptized to take communion, but they have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was the one who came down and was part of God's plan, of re, uh, redemption plan um, to redeem us from our sins, to rescue us from death, um, and to give us eternal life. If, if your child believes that, um, then, then they should they should be able to take communion. Um, if kids just take communion and they're not, then you know. But but um, you know, it, remember, communion is a thing between us and God. Um, I know a lot of people like to put you know parameters on all that kind of stuff. Um, but but if your if your child's like two years old, um, I would I would suggest no, no, because they just look at it as like a juice snack and a and a cracker. So, all right, okay, George Barber. Good afternoon, Pastor. Um, in Revelation, Scripture says, "Do not add or take away from this book." Is it referring to Revelation or the Bible as a whole? Happy Pastor Appreciation Month! Hey, thanks, George. Um, I appreciate that that you appreciate me. Um, when John is talking about that towards the end of the book, he's saying he's referring to Revelation, uh, but but it, it's one of those principles that applies everywhere. Um, uh, and you were not to add or take away from scripture whatsoever. So, um, so I just want to encourage you guys that, yeah, that's, that's exactly, he's, he's referring to the book of revelation and, and remember, um, just to give you a little bit of, uh, uh background, um, John was given, uh, the book of revelation. Now remember it's revelation and not revelations. I, I I've been goaded over that in the past, um, but uh, he was given it as a vision on the Isle of Patmos. And, um, and so they, I think with the content of the book of Revelation, it would be easy to, to either try to take away because it's so scary um, or to add stuff because, you know, we, we want to have our certain, uh, our certain dogma in there for end times kind of stuff. So I just want you guys to, uh, to understand that it was, it, he was referring to the book of Revelation. So Dan S. Oliver. Concerning um, Noahide code, the seven laws of Noah, and one world united, are these codes to unite the world under one faith? I was wondering if you have any thoughts on this. Well, Dan, um, I don't have any thoughts on this because I don't really understand. Um, I, I'm not familiar with the Noahide code. I know I, I know something a little about the one world order, um, and maybe that's what you mean by one world united, but I don't know anything about the Noahide code. I'm not an expert in, 
and that kind of stuff. And so I'm sorry, I don't have any thoughts on it. Um, sometimes Q and A's is, goes as far as, as my knowledge and I, um, I'm pretty sure David does. So I would encourage you to ask him maybe next week. Okay, Tunnel Bannon 23. Hey, I recognize you. Um, you're here quite a bit. You're from Sweden too. And that's where my ancestry is from. So um, I, I appreciate that. Um, says God stopped time in the book of Joshua. Does that mean time travel is basically possible, such as in the movies like Groundhog Day or Back to the Future and Before I Fall? Okay, time travel. Um, you know, it's what's interesting, and I was just reading some fascinating article um, by a physic, the other physics, or not a physician, but a, a PhD in physics, and he was talking about how time travel is impossible. Um, and I am not smart enough to explain to you like what he was saying, but he was, he, his whole nugget was, is like time travel is pros is impossible. Now God made time stand still. Okay. That's not the same thing as, as time travel. It, it basically, he paused the sun. He paused the, the orbit. He paused the, the rotation uh, of the solar system so that the day could stand longer. Um, but it's, I don't, I don't hold that as akin to, to time travel. So tunnel bomb, I hope that, uh, or tunnel ban, and I hope that answer answers your question. So, all right. David Guzik is, is popping in here. He says, Chuck, thanks for filling in for me today. Right now I'm on a flight to Philadelphia. Um, so I'm glad you could stand in for me. All right. So there you go. Philadelphia. Um, sorry for the Phillies. Um, anyways, Regina Queen, how can a child get baptized when they don't know why they are getting baptized? Why do you believe the church began doing this? Oh, pedo baptism. Uh, if, uh, if David was here, you would see his face start to get red. This is one of his, uh, this is one of his, 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 his favorite topics. <laughs> and I, I really like to watch when he does it. Um, I, I'm not as much an expert on pedo baptism or baptism or child baptism. I, I know the Catholic church believes them. I know there's a lot of reformed churches that are really starting to believe in, in child baptism, but let me make it really simple for you, um, Regina, and, and this is my belief. A bat baptism is the public profession, just as I said earlier. Baptism is a public profession of your faith. And, and so as a child, when, when you can't even articulate with your words, um, the there's no way that you can make a public profession. Now, I know people say that parents stand in or they're over their children. There's all these other different reasons that, that, that I'm not qualified to get into. And I know there's a lot of people that would argue with me on this. But what I do want to tell you this is, is that, that when we get baptized, and that's why oftentimes I encourage people not to get um, baptized until they're like seven or eight, because they need to be able to articulate in their mind exactly what they're doing. It doesn't mean that they're not saved, you know, but they need to understand that when they're standing in front of people, I, they said, I, I'm a blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And so that's what baptism is. And, I, and I'm right with you, Regina. I do not believe that, um, that, that kids can get uh, baptized or, or that small infants can get baptized. So if that makes, if that makes sense to you. So I'm, I'm right with you. Um, why did the church begin doing this? Um, well, I can go back to the Catholic church. Um, in the early uh, centuries of medieval time. And um, it's a real fascinating study on this. And I would really encourage you to, um, uh, to go to Lance Ralston's church history uh, podcast, especially the podcast like from 40 to like 60, because that's like the, the Middle Ages. And he really kind of lays out, you know, how all this stuff happened. And, you know, the, when the Roman Empire fell, the church kind of filled that void. 
Um, and they, what they began to do was they began, they began both the, became both the church and the government. And people like Pope Gregory, who really started this, um, kind of uh, saved hundreds of thousands of people from starvation because of a lack of Roman government. But there was almost like too much meshing of, of the church and the state. Um, and so there, when there, when anytime the government is involved, there's always this necessity to control things, and that seeped into the church. And so they began to baptize children, um, kind of like as uh, a way to assure parents, um, but also to, um, you know, kind of like as they began to sell indulgences and stuff uh, to forgive sins, and, and, and it was just it, it was just a, a control way to keep people in the church and let people know if their child goes way away, you know, wayward that they that they at least they were baptized. Well, we know that's not true, and. Um, because we have to bear fruit with our um, our faith as long as well as 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 being baptized. So good question, though. Um, Ray asks, I have a simple question. Can I remarry since my wife left and divorced me and is now living with uh, children with another man? Can I remarry? Okay. So here's the um, yes, yes, you can remarry. Very simple question, Ray. Um, as soon as your wife. Um, uh, started shacking up with this other guy um, that uh, that broke you of your bond, okay? Because um, I'm I'm just going to assume that she is having sexual intercourse with this guy, um, which means that it has broken that bond and you have been set free. Now you you can remarry, okay? Um, as long as you guys have gone through the divorce, and you, of course you're justified in having your divorce because um, she is being um, unfaithful with you. So Ray, I'm really sorry for the circumstances that you're going through. Um, I know you want a straight answer, so I wanted to give that to you first. Um, and I, I would just really encourage you, Ray, um, to seek counsel out in your church, uh, whether it be through your pastors or um, some wise people who are mature in their faith and have maybe walked down this path. Um, because, uh, you know, it's not just as easy as like, hey, I can remarry or I can get, you know, get into another relationship. I know there's a lot of probably a lot of pain in your heart. And I'm not sure if you guys have a family and have children, all that kind of stuff. But I want to encourage you, even though biblically um, you're allowed to remarry, um, just uh, care for your heart first. Um, and make sure that you work through the forgiveness, make sure you work through all the pain on that before you jump into another relationship. I hope that that helps. I hope other people are hearing that as well. Okay, Dennis L. asks, Hi, Pastor, what would you recommend when I see that one of our church leaders is living in sin? Should I pray for them or speak to the other leaders with this issue? Okay, now let me take you to Scripture. Um and the Bible states very clearly that if there's an accusation, especially against leaders, that there needs to be two or three witnesses. So if you see that person living in sin, I would tell you to do what Galatians chapter 6 does, and that is to go to the person and, and to speak to them. Um, it's not a Matthew 18 situation unless they're sinning against you. But Galatians 6 does say, you know, bear with one another. And I would just go up to them and confront them on their sin and, and call them on it and see how they react. And, and if they don't react well, then, then you need to obviously get, you know, two or three other people with you and then go to the church leadership. 
Um, sadly, in today's church, um, you know, most people don't want to deal with this. Um, but I think you, I think you have the right heart. I think that you, um, you have the best interest of the person, and you have a love for your church. And so, Dennis, I would, I would encourage you to, um, to go to the person first, just you and him, okay, and, and do it in a spirit of love and humility. Um, but but just go with scripture and, um, and 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 don't make it an inquisition, but just just go to him and uh, and speak to him. And if he doesn't receive that, um, trust me, uh, if he's truly a, 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 a minister who's been called by God, you coming to him is going to be a shot across the bow. So either he is going to change or, or he's going to um, take the scorch earth policy. And that means he's going to burn everything down in his path and try to make you look like the bad guy. So just want to prepare you for both of those. And hopefully he receives it um, in humility and, and, and tries to correct himself. So, all right. Hope that answers your question, Dennis. Okay. Colin asked, Isaiah 9, 7 says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Does this mean or signify a post-millennial perspective? What are your thoughts on pre, post, and partial millennialism? Okay, so this kind of plays into the um, the Christian nationalism debate right now. And I and I remember, oh, several times back, somebody asked me about Christian nationalism. And the way it was being played out in social media at that time, I just basically called it a nothing burger. But it's really, um, it's really kind of um, underneath that, there are a group of people um, and I believe Doug Wilson from uh, Moscow, Idaho, is one of the big proponents of this. And they, they believe that, that Christians can transform communities and then that transform states and transform nations. And, and that over a period of time, that that's exactly what's going to happen. And then Christ is going to come back. Now, I am your typical pre-millennialist. I believe it's not going to get better. I believe is... Uh, I believe that um, that things are going to get worse, and I don't believe in a post-millennialism. Now, my good friend, I have a very good friend who he is a post-tribber. Um, he believes that, that Christ is going to come back in the post-tribulation. I, I am adamantly holding on to a pre-trib, but we kind of have the same mentality because he's like, hey, I'm post-trib, but, uh, you know, if God decides to come and send Jesus back, Pre-trib, I'm all for that. And I'm kind of the same way. Like, I'm pre-trib, and if God doesn't send Jesus back pre-trib, then I'm, you know, I'm believing that it's going to be mid-trib or pre-wrath kind of thing, because that's how I interpret Scripture, that um, before Jesus, before God pours out his wrath at, at the middle part of the, the tribulation that he's going to remove his people. Um, so I believe that's the last amount. That's why I have a hard time really believing in, in post-trib and post-millennialism, stuff like that. And I believe that after the tribulation's over, that he will come and establish his thousand-year reign. So that's that's what I believe, okay? Um, I don't believe that that Christians are going to be capable of, of um, um, uh, transforming societies uh, um, before uh, to, 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 to have this kind of post-millennial kind of, uh, of view. So, all right? Okay, cool. All right. Do we have any other questions, Nathan? I'm looking at my phone here. Oh, okay. Elevator asks, 
of the apostles being an apostle, apostle, is it sometimes said they are special ambassadors? As Christians, we are all disciples of Christ who are to be witnesses of Jesus Christ and draw people to him. So what is an apostle doing distinctively different from a disciple? Okay, let me answer that because I believe there's a second part of the question, and I'm just going to, okay. Is there a difference between um, the apostles of Jesus' time and people who call themselves apostles today? Well, let's break it down very simply. The word apostle means messenger or ambassador. ambassador. Now, what were the apostles during Jesus' time different? Yes. Why? Well, one, they were personally called by Jesus Christ. So originally, originally we had the 12. Uh, we, lost, uh, we lost one. Um, and, and that left 11. They felt like they needed to add another one. So they cast lots in Acts chapter 1 um, and add another one. But God intended for Paul to be that 12th apostle. And now what's different with them? Well, one, they have a capital A to them. So that was an official title. But what makes them different is that all 12 of those apostles that we see in the book of Acts, they were all people personally called by Jesus. Were they special? Well, special in the sense of it seemed that God gave them uh, supernatural powers to, to minister to people. Um, but were they still human? Oh, yeah, you can see that in the disagreement between Peter and Paul in, in the Jerusalem Council. And so, so yes, uh, elevator, um, were they special ambassadors? I, I'm not sure about the term special, um, but they were special in their ministry. Um, they were unique in the sense that they were the only 12 that were called by Jesus Christ. And of course, Paul, you know, he was called on that road to Damascus where, you know, Jesus said, um, Paul, why are you, why do you keep, uh, um, why do you keep uh, uh, persecuting me? So, so the word special, you know, maybe has different ramifications. And so, uh, I, you know, they were, they were unique in the sense that that's what set them apart. So um, people who call themselves apostles today with a capital A, I really don't give much credence to. Now, the word apostle means, um, means messenger or ambassador, but also has the connotation of a, of a gatherer of people. And, um, and so a lot of times people thought that Chuck Smith had the gift of apostleship because he was the leader of a movement. And, um, and so he, uh, so, but he, he eschewed, he did not want anything to do with that title and he didn't want to be called apostle. He didn't want to, you know, he didn't consider himself even be worthy of being an apostle, um, close to what uh, Paul and Peter were. Um, but there are people who slap that title on, um, and it's it's a man-made title. It's not a God-ordained title. So if that if that helps you right there. Now, your second part of your question says, why do believers today no longer talk about apostles in modern-day senses? Like, my brother was an apostle for four years. Are missionaries, evangelists, or, or, or apostles? Okay. Um, I think there's so much reverence, uh, Elevator, I think there's so much reverence for the original 12 apostles that most people in their humble faith 
um, don't want to be put uh, um, in association with that. So if that makes if that makes sense to you, so um, there is a there is the gifting of apostles. There are people who are messengers, but um, but but we typically don't use the, the the office of apostle or the capital A apostle like a title kind of thing today. So that's just um, you know. And if you realize the Bible was written in, in the first century when there there was uh, the twelve apostles still alive as well. Okay, Kelly Mercer says, is there similar consensus? on both pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation. I recently heard someone say that there's verses to cover every belief. What do you believe? Um, Kelly, you can make almost any verse mean what you want to believe. And for all three of those people, um, you know, I they all have verses that they hold on to. Um, I know there's some post-trib people that hold on to verses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, I know there's mid-tribulation people that hold on to verses in, in Revelation, and there's pre-trib people that, you know, I'm more, you know, familiar with those verses, and that, you know, there's verses all over Scripture. And, and so, is there consensus? Um, yes, there's consensus on this, that Jesus is coming back for his church. Um, is he going to rapture the church? That's what I believe. I believe before the tribulation starts that Jesus is going to rapture his church. Um, as I said earlier, he may not, uh, you know, he may not do it pre, he may do it mid. Uh, I have a hard time believing he's going to do it post. Um, but that's just the way I look at scripture. Um, but everybody I know that is a Bible believing Christian um, basically believes that there's a second coming of Jesus Christ. And then there's going to be a millennial reign here on the earth as well. So um, I hope that um, answers your question. There is consensus on that. Um, and if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says that Jesus, with a, with, a, um, with a loud clap and a trumpet sound, that Jesus will return on the clouds. Okay. Now, when is that? Okay. That's, that's what's up for debate. So there is consensus on that because you really can't um, debate 1 Thessalonians 4. On that, so it's pretty. It's pretty clear because the Thessalonians or Thessalonians, they had thought that they had missed the rapture. Anybody who had watched old Christian movies from the seventies, um, you know, thought the same thing. Uh, that at times that they would <laughs> they would miss the rapture. I remember in junior high thinking that if my mom didn't answer the phone because she was home all the time, if she didn't answer the phone, I missed the rapture. Um, so I mean, that's that's just that's just how things are going. That's what makes it fun. So, all right. I want to say Jonna, um, Jonna D'Alfonso. I am a mother of a 22-month-old, congratulations, and I'm feeling a lot of pressure to homeschool, and if I can't, I'm a bad mom. Does the Bible say anything about this? Okay, Jonna, or maybe it's Jonah, or I don't, I don't I, I'm sorry for, for slaughtering your name. Okay. Um, let me, I'll just talk to you personally and then I'll kind of lay it out. Okay. There are good people who homeschool. There are good people who send their kids to public school. There are good people who send their kids to private Christian school. We homeschooled our kids, our oldest kids up to fourth grade. And then when my youngest daughter became kindergarten eligible, my wife, who's a teacher, started working in a school and they started going to a private Christian school. And they have a, they have a, they have attended private Christian school ever since my two oldest have graduated. 
I will tell you this after five years of homeschooling, that it is not for everybody. And, um, and you really have to have the right motivation. And I'm going to tell you, Jonathan, if God is not leading upon your heart to homeschool, um, uh, uh, then don't, uh, because you will not do it unto the Lord. Now, I will say this, and, and I'm going to wade into the water here. I have a hard time seeing how any good-minded Christian could send their child to public school nowadays. I mean, just the the onslaught of, of, of the um, gender ideology, um, the the, Christ, the critical race theory, the the highly political things that um, that are happening. Uh, I mean, it's there's very little education, and the scores, the test scores, are starting to 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 prove that. And and even though they've dumbed down all the tests and they've dumbed down all the grades and all that kind of stuff, they're still underperforming. Um, and so, you're not going to get a great education in public school. And I, and listen, I know tons of public educators, and there's a lot of public educators that go to our our church, and and a lot of times, you know, they are there because it's a a great way, at least in the state of California, it's a great way of making money and having a flexible schedule, Um, but but they bemoan what they have to go through all the time, and and so, um, you know, I would look for other options. Um, I know Christian education is, is really expensive, um, it's, it's experience. It's a, um, it's expensive for our family and my wife's a teacher and we get a lot of stuff free, but it, there's still a lot of costs, costs on that. So, um, homeschooling is a good way, uh, to, to, to school your children. But I can tell you this right now, if your heart is not in it, you will, um, you, you, you will, you will run into a lot of problems, um, uh, as, as a parent. So, that's that's I'm speaking from personal experience. And so I hope I so I hope that helps you. Um, and uh, and listen, you have to hear from the Lord. And one of the great things about us growing in faith is that we have to shut out the other voices and we have to hear what the Lord's telling. So my question to you, John, would be simply this. What is the Lord telling you? OK, what is the Lord telling you? Not what everybody else is telling you, but what the Lord is telling you. Not, and I'll leave it at that. All right. OK. Let's see here. Bob, or no, Matt Nord. Hello, Pastor. How many judgments are there? You mean in the book of Revelation? Um, well, there, there are three sets of judgments that each have seven in them, where a couple of them, the, the seventh one leads to the next one. So, I mean, if you want to, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, there's 21, but really not really 21. I would say 18, 19. Uh, just off the top of my head right here. Like I said, I'm, um, you know, I'm growing in my knowledge of Revelation all the time. But if you're talking about the book of Revelation, I'm going to say 1819. Okay. Um, based on uh, the the bowls, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I hope that that's what you're talking about. If not, put it back in the comments and we clarify that. And I will, um, I will uh, let you know about that. All right. Okay. Um, Bob, could you expound on the 144,000? Who will be saved? Oh, I like this question. Lots of revelation questions. Is there stuff going on in the world today that make people look in a revelation? Okay, I'm just joking. Okay, the 144,000, this is, this is how I interpret the scripture, and this is what I believe. Those will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists, okay? Does that make sense? That 
it's not going to be, it's definitely not what the Jehovah Witness says because they've even had to blow through that after they grew past 144,000. Although I did meet one of the guys who was the one of the original 144,000. Man, he was cocky and arrogant. And he just was, uh, he was an interesting guy. Um, but here's what I'm going to tell you. Those, that's not just the Jews that are going to be saved. There's going to be 12,000 evangelists from each of the 12 tribes that are going to go out and witness to their own people about Jesus Christ being the Messiah. All right? That's what I believe the 144,000 are. And, um, and I believe that they will lead, I'm hoping that they will lead millions of Jews to Jesus. And, um, and to see everything that's going on, I could see people, um, people's hearts turning towards that. And that's what's been, been my prayer through this whole, um, this whole thing going on in Israel, that, that, that not only would Jews, but, but Muslims would, would only have Jesus to turn to. You know, and, and, and you hear some great stories about going on in the Muslim world, how the Holy Spirit's working, and 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 you know what's going, and you hear like whole families having the same dream that they need to turn to Jesus, and they wake up in the morning, start to tell their dreams, and then the whole family gets saved. And so you see God working in powerful ways, and I would love to see that happen amongst the Jewish people. So, um, Bob, I hope that answers your question on the hundred and forty-four thousand. All right, okay. George, 1 John 4, 16, God is love. God, is God a static feeling? What does it mean? How do we understand the love that God literally is? Okay. Let me, let me back up a little bit because, so in California about I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, there was this thing called Proposition 8. And um, our church, uh, um, it was basically a proposition to define uh, marriage between a man and a woman. And, um, oh, man, uh, I, um, I, our church supported that. My name got on this blacklist. I had people calling me, screaming at me, yelling at me. And all of them used this verse, God is love. And and I always went back to this, to, to simply this. I, I think God's predominant characteristic is holiness. And out of that holiness it is, is his capability to love perfectly, or what we call agape love, unconditional love. And, and so when John says God is love, it, it's not some kind of static thing. It's not his, his predominant feature. It's not even his, um, you know, that, you know, like, that's, that's what all he's about. And it definitely doesn't mean that he just loves no matter what you're doing and accepts you as forever. That's definitely not what it is. When it says God is love, it, it, what it's simply saying is, is that he is the perfect form of love. That we will never find uh, anything as true and as pure as God's love anywhere else. We can't manufacture it. Everything else is a fraud and a fake, but God is love. So when John says God is love, it's like you look to him and, and as Roman 5, 5 says that when we believe in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit pours his love into his heart. It's basically saying that, that God truly loves us in a way that we cannot comprehend. But but like I like to tell people what we need to understand first and foremost, before God is love, God is holy. 
And I believe everything streams out of that holiness. And why do I say God is holy? Because we see in the scripture that, that we can't come to him because we're unholy and unrighteous. That, that no one can stand into his presence um, because of his holiness. And, and that's why we see the elders and, and the beast and, and, and the angels falling down and the elders casting their crowns. God is holy. And that's what makes his love so pure and true because he is holy. And so when it says God is love, what John is saying is that out of God's holiness, you will find the perfect love that nothing else compares to. So that's that's my thoughts on it. And I hope, George, that that answers your question on that. All right. Okay. Colin asks, should I, in Christ, expect material blessings as part of the promises to Abraham and Israel. You know, th this is a great question, Colin. And um, because oftentimes, and I and I and I, I I think Greg Laurie was the one who coined this theme. Oftentimes, Christians look to Jesus or to God as a cosmic Santa Claus. Okay. And somehow they spend a good chunk of their walk with Christ on earth trying to figure out how they can manipulate more physical blessings out of God than either the next person or what they have right now. And, and what I want you guys to understand is, is that the physical blessings that were promised um, were promised to Israel in the Old Testament. Now, the spiritual blessings that we get through Jesus Christ as part of the new covenant, because a lot of those blessings were based upon the old covenant. It was a cause and effect. You obey, you're blessed. You disobey, you're cursed. Okay, I mean, that's, that's like it in a very like succinct nutshell. But we want to transfer. Okay, if I obey God and I go to church enough times and I read my Bible enough and all that kind of stuff, then, then all these physical blessings. But what we can't explain is, is what, if, what if God decides to bless somebody that is not doing those things? We have a real hard time with that. And, um, and, and what I want you guys to understand is, is that we cannot merit God's blessings. God's blessings are based completely upon his will and his desire. Okay? And, and so um, if God choose to, chooses to bless you financially, it's because he believes that, he can, that you can handle it, but also, too, that he can use it through you for his purposes and for his glory. Okay? Um, and the whole prosperity gospel thing, like, you know, like, and, and trust me, I, I know a lot of people that are into this, but you cannot declare to God your prosperity. You cannot declare to God your healing. You cannot declare to God to, to anything. All it says that we're to humbly come before the Lord. So I want to encourage you to understand that. I hope that, I hope that, um, uh, you know, does God still bless us physically and um, materially? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm a living testimony to that. But 
it's never been based on anything that I've done. But I can say that I bet my sin has prevented God's blessing sometimes. And so now I'm not telling you to go and, and like try not to sin because that's that that just becomes legalistic. But but my goodness is is as filthy rags before the Lord. So I hope that I hope that um, Colin, I hope that answers your question. Okay, next question. He is returning soon. I agree. I like that. And I think I remember that name from a couple weeks ago. It says, can you comment on the news that Calvary Chapel Greg Laurie seeks to have a big tent Christianity that includes Roman Catholicism, emergent church type theology? What are your thoughts on this? Um, well, I haven't heard this. And, and I would love for you to stick some kind of link in the in the notes so I can kind of look at this. Um, you know, Greg Laurie's no longer part of Calvary Chapel. When he dual affiliated with SBC, he got kicked out of Calvary Chapel. He wanted to be both, um, but Calvary Chapel got um, their feelings hurt and they they, they kicked them out. Um, but you have to realize, and my indoctrination to Calvary Chapel was through Greg Laurie. Um, I uh, went to a uh, Assembly of God school back then. It was called Southern California College. Now it's called Vanguard. It was literally right around the corner from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And my RA, Scott Bedley, took me to a Monday night church service. I remember him asking me, hey, you want to go to church? I'm like, it's Monday night. He's like, oh, no, it's really cool. And I'm like, nobody goes to church on Monday night. And, and I remember walking on to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. This is 1992. And thousands of people are on the campus, and it's just this beautiful fall um, uh, Monday evening in Orange County. And the, the church service is packed, and you have the ushers, like, you know, pulling people in so they can squeeze in so we can get more people. There's people sitting on the grass, and there's, I, I, I'm, I, I think Crystal Lewis was playing music that night. Um, and I remember, I remember 100 or 200 people coming to know Jesus Christ that night. As people walk down and people clapping, and I'm like going, who comes to Jesus on Monday night? Because, I mean, I was old school assembly God. It was Monday. You went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday. And, I mean, I did all those kind of things. But I was blown away by a guy that could get, on a Monday night, get thousands of people out, preach the gospel in a, in a very appealing way, and hundreds of people came to know Jesus Christ. I share that with you because Greg Laurie has always had a greater appeal than just Calvary Chapel. And you can tell that, you can see that by the Jesus Revolution movie um, and by his crusades. Um, and also too, by, uh, by just the fact that, I mean, presidents have sought him out um, and he is friends with um, a, a lot of well-known people and he's really well-respected. And so he gets accused a lot of times of, um, he gets accused a lot of times of, of being way more ecumenical, ecumenical than um, than he probably is, and so I am not going to um, uh, uh, I'm not going to say that about Greg because the fact is is that I know God's using him and I know he I he's very clear on his doctrine. Okay, all right, um, Vincent, I see your question and thing. I did clarify. 
Um, I would not quit a church that gives communion to children. I wouldn't. I mean, if you're getting fed there, that's your, where your community is. I wouldn't quit that church. So sorry if I wasn't clarified on that enough. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, um, Lynn asks, does Ephesians 5 mean if we are in sexual sin, we aren't saved? So Ephesians 5 says this, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, no covetous person who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, um, now, <laughs> okay, then I want to answer this in the best way possible. And um, I believe there'll be people in heaven that have committed these types of sins. I, I just, I believe that um, just because of God's grace and, um, and because the fact is, is that no sin is unforgivable. Um, I've always taken this to basically mean people who are caught up in besetting sins or lifestyles, if that makes sense to you. Um, people who are caught up in, in, in these, um, these lifestyles and they have a chance to, to repent, but they don't. And they, they have a chance to walk away. Now, remember, the word repent literally means to turn and go the other way, to do a 180 or a U-turn and go away from what you were doing, to have a complete change of thought and mind of what you were doing and, 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 um, and to, go, to go do something differently. And so um, for us to repent means that we go away. Now, I believe that Ephesians 5.5 5 was always talking about those people who are in those, those lifestyles, but yet refuse to change. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, obviously that opens up a lot of things like, you know, can people lose their salvation? Um, I, I don't believe people can lose their salvation. I believe people leave their salvation. Um, and I, people, I think people will leave their salvation over things like these things. Um, they'll leave the church. They'll leave the, the, the community of believers. They'll leave the fellowship. They'll leave, they'll leave all that kind of stuff. And they'll leave any kind of an influence of Jesus Christ upon their life. And so and I think that's what encumbered, encompasses, these, encompasses these people right here. All right? Man, great questions. I always think, oh, we're going to run out of questions. We're going to be done like in 20 minutes. And you guys, like, man, it just keeps coming. So, um, all right. Christina Johnson. Good afternoon. I was always taught that committing suicides will not get you to heaven. Is there scripture to specifically confirm or deny this? Or is it concluded concerning thou shall not murder? Okay. <laughs> I grew up being taught that suicide was the unforgivable sin. That if you killed yourself, that, that you were going to hell because, um, you, you went against God's will or all, all different types of things. I've heard so many different teachings. And I will tell you this, Christina, that, that um, you, if you commit suicide, um, that does not mean that you will go to heaven or you won't go to heaven. And, and, and what I mean by that is simply this, is that I believe people can be so beaten down I believe people can be feel so defeated and so discouraged by the world, by their sin, by Satan, that, that they lose all hope, okay? Now, if we lose all hope and we end up taking our own life uh, because of that hope and, and, or, or because of mental illness or, or whatever it may be, um, 
does that mean that we should be eliminated from going to heaven? And, and because I think oftentimes when people say about suicide, you know, they think it, they think it's a purposeful choice. But 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 the people that I've come in contact that are that are suicidal, they've they've lost their mind. They've lost their ability to to have any kind of rational reasoning. And, and so I I share that with you guys. And it, I don't believe that suicide falls under "Thou shalt not murder." And um, and I think that um, that God's grace can. Um, confirms. Can I share any scriptures with you um, to confirm or deny this um, off the top of my head? No, I can't. Um, but um, but I, you know, from just hearing from good teachers, and I, and I know they shared scripture, and I wish I could remember back to that. But off the top of my head, I can't. I can't pull the scriptures um, off out of my mind. So sorry about that. But I hope that answers your um, your question, Christina. All right, Mr. Big Guy asks, how does Jesus and the church view sinners? Are some much worse than others? What scripture says, and the church's response is very confusing to me at times, it seems inconsistent and conflicting. Yes, Mr. Big Guy, I I totally agree with you. Um, But here's the thing. Um, You know, I've heard it preached, and, and I probably preach the same thing, that the foot of the cross is level. That all sins are the same. And, and to a certain extent, there's truth there. Um, uh, all sins can be forgiven by Jesus Christ. Because as I talked at the very beginning of the show, once was enough. His blood being shed upon the cross, his crucifixion and, um, was enough for every sin till the end of time. Okay? His blood is powerful enough. His life and his sacrifice is powerful enough to forgive sins. So, so yes, there is a certain equalness um, uh, of, of sins. But are there sins that are much worse than other sins? Oh, yes. And in fact, the Bible talks about how sexual sins are worse than other sins because they're sins against the body. You know, and I, I think of like what happened in Israel where, where um, you know, young children were murdered and, and raped and, and, and tortured and now they're, they're, they're uh, they're hostages. I mean, that's much worse than than say you know some of the 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 lesser sins like lying or gossip or all that kind of stuff. Now they're all sins that will prevent us from getting to heaven. But I I think the damage, I think the the intent, I think the consequences are much greater for other sins than they are some other sins. So if that makes sense to you. So I want you to understand that, yes. But I also agree with you that that the church's response is very confusing. And I'm not here to defend how everybody um, responds. And I'm definitely not here to generalize how the church responds. But I think of things like homosexuality. You know, and I see how people in the church have reacted to that. And then they've been they've been very judgmental as opposed to like the homosexuals thinking that that we should be more loving now. And I think there's like all this confusion in the church today about about that. But but you have to understand the emotions behind it, because, you know, the ramification um of, of, of sins like homosexuality uh, um, are, are really deep, you know, um, and 
the studies and the facts back this up. I mean, the level of abuse within the homosexual community, the number of sexual partners within the homosexual community. I mean, all of those are, are, are much greater than even in, in adulterous relationships. And, and the ramifications, the consequences of those sins are, are much more damaging um, because just they're much more pervasive. And so um, I think you see people reacting with those emotions. Um, and, uh, and so now not every reaction is wrong and there's been a lot of react, uh, bad reactions, um, but I can see how you would be confused and, um, and it is inconsistent and it is conflicting and I'll agree with you, but, but Mr. Big Guy, let me tell you this, the church is full of humans. Flawed, sinful, confused humans who are trying to make this uh, their way in this crazy world. And, um, and I think that while they need to learn how to extend grace to people, I think we need to learn how to extend grace to fully perfect in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's my response to you. All right. Okay, Colin. Colin asks, does believing pre or post millennialism affect how I live? It seems post mill would be more engaging with some people and pre would perhaps be more fearful. How does pre millennialism impact your approach to life or your walk with God in contrast, maybe to post millennialism? Okay, see, Colin, I would flip that around. I would flip that around on you, say, because I live with a much more engaging life because I'm pre-mill. Because I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back before the millennial reign. Whereas the post-mill is like, hey, it's all going to work out, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, how do I live? I live simply with this, that the fact is, is that Jesus could Christ, Jesus Christ could come back in my lifetime or he could not come back in my lifetime. So I live with this urgency that everybody I come in contact with, I want them to know Jesus Christ. But at the same time, it may not happen in my lifetime. And, and so I want to, to live in such a way that glorifies God and, and, and proclaims the gospel that way as well. So that's the way I live. I hope that helps you. Um, I mean, if that's your, if that's your experience with post um, that's great. I, uh, you know, um, I, this whole post millennials thing and this, this Christian nationalism thing is, you know, I, I'm just kind of growing in my knowledge of it. And I think David has probably the best, um, analogy for all this. And he's like, if post millennialist is going to work out, um, why don't they get a community like Moscow, Idaho, elect all Christian officials, and then enact Christian laws and see how it works out. I can tell you this. There's a book called The Crucible that my wife is reading with her AP English class that she teaches at her high school. And The Crucible is all about the witch hunts. And if you know anything about the witch hunts, the same witch hunts, those were based on Christian communities with Christian leaders, with Christian laws. And they became so legalistic that people didn't line up like them. They started doing witch hunts. So... We have plenty of experience where these Christian um, communities just don't work out. They devolve into hyper crazy legalism. And pretty soon, if somebody doesn't look exactly like me, then they're wrong and they need to be punished. So 
that's my that's my opinion of post-millennials. So hope that I, I hope that helps you out and um, um, and kind of answers your questions there. Okay, last questions. Last questions. Grady Price, do we have any idea how old Bathsheba was when she met David? Ooh, good question. You know, I never even thought of the, the age of Bathsheba. Um, I don't know. That's not even a question that, that I have pondered before. Um, if I could, if I could guesstimate, it would be early 20s. Um, it could even, you know, with, with, with her immaturity to be out bathing in the open where the king could see her, um, I, she might even be younger, um, based on that immaturity, but that's my own speculation. So I'm going to say late teens, early twenties. We don't know about her having any other children beforehand. So she could even be younger. All we know that her husband was out to war and she was by herself. So, um, it could be a new marriage. That's what I got. Okay, um, Carmi, how to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit of fire. Wow, Carmi, we're going to go out with that question. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, now, I believe, and I, and I believe I'm speaking with David too, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate experience from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you get with salvation. Okay. Now, if you talk to some good Baptists, and I have some good Baptist friends, they'll talk about how the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a progression over time. But if you look at the book of Acts, several times Paul uh, and Peter asked people, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Like, we know no baptism of the Holy Spirit. We just know the baptism of John. Okay? And some people say, well, they weren't really saved. And I'm like, well, uh, baptism, you know, and they're going to. So I just believe it's a separate one. I believe there's different Greek words used for, for both of them. And I believe it's where the fire of the Holy Spirit comes down. I think it's what we see in Acts chapter 2. But do I believe that, like, you know, as I was growing up taught, taught that, you know, speaking in tongues was the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Do I believe that? No. I, don't, I used to believe that. I don't believe that now. How do you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Um, there's a great old Pentecostal um, verbiage that I like to do. And that, and that is pushing through, um, when, when you're tired, uh, when you don't can't, when you can't think you go any farther, you just keep pushing through. And, and, um, you know, you may be blessed with asking the Lord, Lord, I want you to baptize in the Holy Spirit. And he just does it right there. You just feel that presence come upon you. You may speak in tongues. You may not, you may feel, you know, like when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, I didn't start speaking in tongues, but I just felt like, like somebody had put, um, electrical conduits on my feet and my hands. And it was just like, they were just tingling like crazy. That's what, that's what happened to me. That was in a, in an old campground in Eastern Oregon. It was just awesome. It was awesome. But Carmi, this is what I would say. I would say, be persistent, be like the persistent widow and, and spend time in prayer, spend time in fasting, spend time in the word and just seek God and say, God, I want the uh, I want the, the overflowing power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I just, I want, I want to be this overflowing cup. And so just pour it into me. And so I just want to encourage you um, in your time to do that and, uh, and seek the Lord. And I think that you will, um, you will find that God will be faithful. So anyways, um, 
All right. Any other, uh, if you have any other questions, leave them in there. Uh, this is my last question. Thank you guys. I always consider it a blessing when David lets me do this and I just got a thumbs up that I did. Okay. And so, um, thank you for everything. Um, God bless you guys. You guys are so faithful and, uh, we'll see you guys. You've been listening to a message by pastor David Guzik for enduring word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.